everybody. How are we this morning? Sweet. So I just got the news from him a few minutes ago, but I want to congratulate our brother Gary. He had a beautiful, uh, healthy little girl two days ago, so that's awesome. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Um, so you know how the new baby stuff goes. I know how the new baby stuff goes. Let's just keep them in prayer and, and you know, and keep praying for them and, and that she continues to be healthy and everything strives forward. Um, so I guess sorry for my appearance. TJ pointed out this morning it looks like I need, <laughs> I need some sleep or something, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I, could, I could use a nap. I'm not even going to argue with him there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I told him, I, I was like, dude, it feels like I got a tetanus shot in my hip, but I haven't had a tetanus shot. So I don't know where that one's coming from. But um, so this morning I want to start off with a little riddle, and I want you to you know listen and think about it. Some of you may have heard it, and you'll probably be the one to ruin the riddle for everyone that hasn't, but whatever. So um, it goes like this. A man is walking on a black road wearing all black, a black cloak, a black hat, a black mask, black shoes, gloves, and pants. All the streetlights are switched off, and there's no moon in the sky. A black car with its headlights switched off approaches at a very high rate of speed, and it slams on its brakes at the last moment to avoid hitting the man in the street. How did the driver of the black car know the man was in the street? I'll give you guys a minute with that one. Any guesses? Anybody? He was smiling. <laughs> I like that, dude. That's outside of the box. I like that guess. Yeah, it was the middle of the day. <laughs> in, in all of the description we got there, you know, it was plainly written out in front of us, but we just failed to overlook that it never in there says it was night anywhere. And so that's one of those. Oh, duh, you know, you, do you ever have those moments in life where you're in a situation or whether someone's explaining something to you and all of a sudden you're like, oh, duh, that was right there in front of me. Um, sometimes I read scripture and I look at things and I'm going through this and I, and I start to wonder if the Pharisees of the religious elite of the time ever had that, oh, duh moment when Jesus was raised from the grave on the third day because they had the scriptures, and that's what they were bound to. They were bound to the scriptures, and they studied them and read them, and there was a messianic prophecies in there, and there were things that revealed what were going to happen, and they were so a part of what was happening, they didn't even realize that they were the ones fulfilling some of these scriptures. So sometimes I get my mind, I wonder if they, if they had this all oh, duh moment, but then when you kind of think about who the Pharisees were and, and um, their mindset they had in things, I don't think they had that uh, uh, moment. Um, they were so hung up on um, fulfilling the law and, and holding others accountable to the law that they were so self-absorbed and self-focused on the things. I don't think they seen the things going on around them to where they had that odd, dumb moment. Um, so much to the so it was ingrained that the word Pharisee I looked up actually means like set apart or separated. So it was even in their name that they considered themselves separate and set apart to where they weren't held to some of the uh, um, life that other people lived. And so as we go on today, we're going we're gonna to be looking at um, some messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. And uh, 
we're going through our series, Jesus in All of Scripture. And it's awesome to see Jesus revealed in all of these scriptures because Jesus is unlike anyone else. In Luke 19.10, it tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that's great news to us because we don't have to find ourselves on the outside of heaven looking in saying, Oh, duh, he was the way in. We don't have to do that. Today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapters 52 and 53. We're going to be in the end of 52 and throughout 53. There's some weird breaks in some of uh, the sections here and some of the servant songs that are in the book of Isaiah. So we'll be going from one to the other. But what we have here in this passages in Isaiah is the quintessential messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. It's the pinnacle of all the Old Testament predictions that are fulfilled in the New Testament. One author said, Isaiah 53 contains unarguable, incontrovertible proof that God is the author of Scripture, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. The, de- the de- details and stuff are so minute and so um, plainly broken down that there is no way that any human could ever have predicted them, and there's no way that any other human imposter could fulfill them by cunning or being slick. And yet... This chapter that we're going to be looking at, it was, it was written 680 years before Jesus Christ. Some theologians call it like the Mount Everest of some of the Messianic prophecies. Charles Spurgeon said, it's the Bible in miniature, the gospel in essence. This chapter is the sum and the substance of the gospel message. Isaiah 53 is um, mentioned so many times. Jesus himself quoted it and spoke from it. It's, get this, it's mentioned and referred to in um, 15 times in the New Testament. It's referred to by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. So do you think some of the New Testament authors that, that wrote the majority of the New Testament understood the importance of Isaiah 52 and 53? Absolutely. Absolutely they did. Um, In fact, this passage right here, if you guys remember, gosh, it's been a while now, huh? How long has it been since we did the Acts series? Last year, huh? We did the Acts series last year, and in Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's riding in a chariot, and he pulls over, and he's reading scripture, and Philip comes along, and the Ethiopian eunuch guy, he says, hey, um, I'm reading this, and I see what it says, but tell me, who is this speaking of? And Philip is able, in that moment, to um, share Christ with the guy to where they get out, they go down from the road, they find a river, and he's baptized there on the spot. He was reading from Isaiah 53. And so one of the things that we should know about this before we dive into it is this section that we're going to be reading is, is known as a servant song. And in the book of Isaiah, there's four servant songs, and they take place in chapter 42, 49, 50, and then this 52 slash 53. They're either parts or all of those chapters that are referring to Christ. So if you guys want to turn with me today, we're going to be in Isaiah And we're going to start in 52, chapter 13, and then we're going to go through all the way through the end of 53. Man, could you give me a bottle of water, please? You are the best part of my life. So 52, 
Starting in 13, I'll get out of your guys' way here, and then we'll go up through the end of 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond the human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, of us all. He is oppressed. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before the shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall pro prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper and is, and is in the hand, and is in hand. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted righteous and shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet before, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is God's word. Join me as we open up in prayer before we dive into this. Father God, we're so grateful that we have your living, breathing word to speak to us and guide us and teach us. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit to come and to help us discern truth from false and what is and what isn't. As we go through today's passages and we go through your word, like the song we sing, I want to see Jesus lifted high. So as we go through today's message and we go through all the things and we put ourselves into the message and we look at different areas through all of it, let us exalt the name of Jesus and keep him lifted high. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Maria. I'm going to get a drink there. So what I want to do as we go through this is we're kind of just going to skim over it and we're going to uh, take a look at some of the things. But what I want to do as we skim over it and look at it is I want to show you six different characteristics of the man, the one named the servant. First of all, we'll see here that 
He is a sovereign servant. I hate trying to do those two words together as I was practicing. I fumble them every time. He's a sovereign servant. That is, he is the Lord God, God, God the Father's own servant, and he came to this earth primarily to serve and do the will of his Father. Now, you'll recall that Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom of many. In John chapter 6, he said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So his whole life was wrapped up in coming down here to do the will of his Father, to be the Savior. Um, one of the things when I found when I was studying these scriptures and going over the, this um, messianic prophecy is not everybody out there agrees that this is about Jesus. Isaac, and one of the reasons uh, that I found, well, I found a few reasons, but one of the main reasons I found that some people, some theologians, some um, Jewish rabbis want to dispute the fact that this is about Jesus is what they hold on to is that throughout the book of Isaiah, he uses the term servant several different times regarding several different people. One time he uses, or there's times that he uses the word servant to describe the nation of Israel. There are times where he uses the word servant to describe himself, a servant of the Lord. And then in this that we read, he uses it to describe the Messiah. Um, one of the things they really tried to hang on to and see here is that um, this passage, the servant term that he was using in these passages, was trying to describe the nation of Israel. But one of the things that we can see is it can't be the nation of Israel because from what we read and what the scripture is telling us, one, Israel never suffered vicariously for another nation. Yes, they suffered, but they never suffered vicariously for another nation. Two, they never suffered voluntarily. We see in these words the description of Christ suffering voluntarily. And three, they never suffered silently. We definitely know that with some of the other messages I spoke just recently about um, some of their complaints and things they cried out for in wanting um, bread and wanting more water and, and crying out, is he really going to care for us? Um, they never suffered silently. Um, it, it points out in Isaiah 49, which is the second of the four servant songs of Isaiah, in that chapter, the Lord God speaks to his servant, the Messiah, about his servant Israel. So in that area, it, it's clearly separating those two servants in that single passage. So this is the sovereign servant of the Lord, God's servant. This is Jesus. The next thing I want to point out, the next characteristic that we can see in going through these scriptures is he's a sinless servant. If we see in um, verse 9, it says, They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Remember, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but it says, like, he bore no sin. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, it goes on to say. And one translation puts it, because he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Remember what Jesus asked some of his uh, detractors when he was in confrontation? He, was, he asked them, he said, which of you can convict me of sin? It was a rhetorical question because none of them could convict him of no sin because he bore no sin. He was a sinless servant.
Paul the Apostle understood this when, he, uh, when God made him, Jesus, who no, knew no sin, to be sin for us. He was sinless, and there was no sin nature in him. And now, like, why is that important to pick up on that characteristic of him? It's, mis- it's mentioned in the scripture, so it's one of the ways that's showing us that it's referring to Jesus. But it's important to show us that the punishment that he got, the price that he paid, he didn't deserve it. We did. We were sin. We had the sin nature. And now, that, you know, that's a great story for us hearing this because um, we are still sinners. But he paid that price for us. The next thing that we'll see is he's a suffering servant. We'll see a lot of words as we go through this in the next verse. But the third characteristic I want to point out is he's a suffering servant. If we go back to chapter 52 and look at verse 14, if you guys want to follow along, I'm going to be jumping all over so that you don't have to try and keep up with this. But if we go back to 52 and look at verse 14, it says, and in this translation I have here, it says, his visage was marred. And what it's talking about, his face, his face was marred, marred more than any other man, his form more than the sons of men. This is how, it, how it's described in the Living Bible. It says, they shall see my servant beaten and bloodied. So disfigured, one would scarcely know it was a person standing there. Do you remember the crowd standing before Pontius Pilate? They wanted blood. They shouted, crucify him. Pilate did what he could at that moment to placate the crowd by having him dragged off and having him beaten. So he handed him over to the Roman soldiers, had him dragged off, and had him scourged. And as I was studying this deeper and as I was seeing some of these words and then I go and I start looking into them a scourging was savage sometimes just from the scourging that people would suffer they wouldn't even survive that what what you'd often have in a Roman scourging is you would have the person who was being scourged and you would have them you would have them tied up with their back facing and you would have two Roman soldiers, one on each side of them, and they would have whips in their hands. And their whips would have a handle and have long leather coming off of the end of the whips. And often in the leather would be embedded metal or glass or bone, anything that was sharp and jagged so that as they hit the person over and over again, it would embed into the skin and they would have to pull that back out. And that's where we get the term by his stripes. Because they were literally leaving stripes in people to the fact that some say the tissue was torn open to the point where you could see some of the vital organs in the back of the person. He was a suffering servant. When they brought Jesus back from the Roman scourging, he stood a second time before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate said those famous words, Behold the man, as if to say, Do you now pity this poor, bloodied creature? Have you not had enough of his punishment? But of course, that wasn't it. That wasn't the end of it. There was more. He was given the cross. He was given the upper beam of a cross, which was, I found, called the patibulum. And the upper beam of the cross weighed anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds. So after he was beaten and scourged, he was given this large piece of wood and told to carry it up to the hill. 
And as we see in Scripture, he didn't even make it all the way. There was a man who came and carried it the rest of the way for him. If we jump into chapter 53 and look at verses 4 through 7, I want you guys to take a look at that. If you could pull those up, 4 through 7, if you've got to kind of shift through them. If you have your Bibles open, like I urge you to really take a look at verses 4 through 7 and think of a suffering servant. I'll give you guys a second to look at that. Really picture this in your mind's eye. Look at some of the verbiage that's used to describe it here. Stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, we see wounded, bruised, his stripes that I just mentioned. Verse 7, we see oppressed. Again, we see afflicted. Look at the phrase in verse 7. Led as a lamb to the slaughter. In 10, we see the word bruised. We see grief. Now, as you see this in your mind's eye, as you see this picture of what happened and what he went through, this should take your breath away. This should pull on the deepest recesses of your being. Because we're not talking about just anybody. This description is describing Christ, the Messiah, the sinless servant. He went through what we just saw in Scripture. He went through this. I can't even find words to describe it. This savage, ruthless beating, and he was sinless. He didn't deserve it, but he did it. And he did it for you and us. One of the things that uh, I thought of as I was doing this, and, I, and it got me thinking, is like God's sinless servant is experiencing great suffering. And it should take our breath away because no other religion would ever hinge on the fact that their God, their Messiah, their Savior was a suffering servant. We'll move on to the next characteristic. We'll see that he's a substitutionary servant. Throughout this whole section, the whole language of this uh, area, we see the language of substitution. See, we have a problem. We have a problem in the human race. And the problem in the human race is that we have a sickness. We have a sickness called sin. And it's not something that uh, we can just get a prescription from, from any doctor, and it could fix our sin. It's not something that's just easily tackled and taken care of. We have this debilitating disease living inside of us. We have sin nature. And that's one thing that we can say for sure is a collective of the entire human race is that the human race altogether has a sin problem. Isaiah touches on it. He mentions in the verses that we just read, like our griefs or literally our sickness our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, that's our stuff. That's what we have. And to put it in a single sentence, it says, we all have a sorrow that comes from a sickness that is brought out by sinfulness. So our disease of sin requires a specialist. 
It requires uh, someone that could come in and truly fix it for us. There is no quick fix. What it required was a substitute. We couldn't fix it. There was no way that we could fix it on our own. We needed someone to step in our place and do what we couldn't and fix it for us. One of the things that uh, I, I thought of in this is like when we say the term in church a lot, when we say uh, Jesus died for you, you know, um, Jesus died for your sins. One of, the, one of the other ways that we could really put it is Jesus died instead of us. Jesus died instead of us. That meant what? Instead of dying for us, he took what we deserved and died instead of us. He's a substitutionary servant. Next, we'll go on to the part, and it'll be in uh, 53, probably in verse 7, is we see he's a silent servant. Another thing I want us to see, another characteristic I want us to see here is that through it all, he was silent. I think so often when we are confronted with something in our lives, when we're confronted with something, and especially if we're confronted with something when we're, like, we're innocent, like, the first thing we want to do is, is voice our opinion, defend ourselves, speak up in those times. Jesus was accused. He was dragged off. He's already been beaten, hurt. You don't see him defending himself. We see him being the substitution for us as a silent servant. It says, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, Isaiah is writing this 680 years before he was crucified, before he ever experienced this in real time. He is writing this. But that's exactly what happened. We know he was brought before the chief priests, and he was questioned, and he remained silent. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, and they said, what do you have to say for yourself? And he was silent. They hurled accusations at him. They hurled insults at him. They threw at him everything they could, yet he remained silent. None of them were true. He was also brought on trial before Pontius Pilate, who questioned him, and he had some words with him, but we were told at the end he answered him nothing. He even stood before Pontius Pilate, he told him at one moment that he is king, and he has a kingdom, and then after he's seen it going nowhere, he remained silent. He answered him not one word. We think of him as a silent servant. Now, in our day and age, in our lives, in our world, silence can be intimidating. Silence can be awkward. Silence can be intimidating. It's like you're talking with someone, you're having a conversation, and you guys are engaging, and all of a sudden, they just stop, and they're just looking at you. I don't know about you guys. My mind starts running 100 miles an hour. I'm like, what are they thinking? Did I make them angry? Did I hurt them? Where's this going? I'm afraid of what they're going to say. It can get kind of awkward.
I think sometimes we get all freaked out about silence, like I said, with each other. And I sometimes wonder if when in our, in our prayer lives, in our walk with God, if we get a little um, uncomfortable and awkward in God's silence. Like, I'm not hearing from God right now. Like, is he hearing my prayers? I'm not hearing back from him. But just like when you're in that conversation with someone, just like when you are uh, um, going, going through something with somebody else and you're discussing it and that silence comes, that silence gives you time to think. It gives you time to relay through your mind, to really think about some things. And so sometimes I wonder if when we're not hearing back from God, if he's giving us time to think about some of the things that we probably already know. So the sixth and final thing that I'll, I'll, I'll point on out of the characteristics of a servant is, man, this one's the good news. He's a saving servant. He's a saving servant. The good news found in verse 15 of chapter 52 is, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It's a Levitical term. It talks about when the priests would, um, they used to sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb to, um, in a sense, cleanse that situation or cleanse, cleansing in that system. And that's how, he, that's how he saves us. He sprinkles. And, but we see here, it says, he will sprinkle many nations. And then if we go down to verse 11 in 53, it says, he will see the labor of the soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteousness shall serve and justify many. But we see a word there. We see a word there in two of those scriptures. We see the word many. He will sprinkle many nations. He will justify many nations. And that's good news because we are many. But at the same time, it's troubling because if there are many that are, there are many that aren't. And so that's saying not all will be sprinkled. Not all will be saved. Many will, but by the virtue of many, that means that there are many or that won't. And why is it there are many that won't? Many won't because many won't allow Jesus to be their substitute. Many won't admit their need for a savior. Many of us have smudges and smears and things that need to be sprinkled and be cleaned, but not everybody will admit that. It, it comes down to the old term, you, you guys know this one, good intentions. We run into people in our lives, we run into people in our society that say, well, I'm not that bad. I've done some good things in my life. I go through each and every day with good intentions. I never intend to harm anybody. And I think on that day when I stand before God, he will see that. Good intentions will not get us into heaven. There's one way, and there's one way, and that's by having a substitute. That's by admitting our need, our our overwhelming need for a savior and accepting him into our life and knowing and trusting in our faith that he is the way he is the truth he is the path to eternal life there are people that don't allow the servant to serve them 
They don't allow the servant to be their substitute, which is indeed what is needed to bring salvation. Um, one of the things that got me thinking about it, like it, it's, oft, it's often very embarrassing to be thought guilty of something when you're not. Nobody likes to be thought guilty of something when you're not. But it's much worse to be guilty and think that you're not. Isaiah 53 answers the most important question that we could ever have asked. The um, More important than who's going to win the next election? Are my taxes going to grow up? For you younger guys, what am I going to be when I grow up? Where is my, what am I going to do with my life? It answers the question far more important than any of those. And that's how, how can a sinner be made right in the sight of God? How can a sinner escape eternal damnation and spend eternal life in heaven? It's answered here in this scripture by a stand-in, by a substitute, by a sinless, silent servant of God, by Jesus, by him himself taking the suffering and the death that we deserve and taking it in our place, the punishment for our sin, dying for our transgressions, putting himself in the place we deserve to be and sprinkling us clean, justified. There's one thing I can say, but until we admit that we have a need for a Savior and ask him to do something about it, we're under this guilt sentence, this death sentence. And just like that riddle that I started out the morning with, I don't ever want it for us or anybody anywhere to have that Ah, duh moment when they're standing on the outside of heaven looking in. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that you stepped in and took our place. You absorbed the wrath and the punishment and the torture and all of the things that we caused and we deserved. You took them on our behalf. If there's anybody in here right now that might be on the outside looking in, that might be trying to pave their way with good intentions, if there's anybody that they're close to, anybody that, that, that they're friends and family with, if there's anybody that they encounter on their daily basis, anybody that's just a random passing, that they will understand the need for the Savior and they will understand the need to share the one and only way into eternal life in heaven with them. That they themselves will seek out the safe Savior, set down their pride, stop being pharisaical and setting themselves apart and thinking good intentions will get them there. They will accept the substitute. They will accept you as their Savior. As we go into our time of our four ways and our prayer and our uh, communion, I just, if anybody is in that place, I urge you in that moment to lay that at the cross and invite Jesus into your life. Jesus, we love you. May your name ever be lifted high. Amen.